0: C-SPAN's The Weekly is taking a Thanksgiving break this week, so we'd like to use the time to introduce you to one of the six other podcasts we post regularly. Q&A is a program of hour-long, compelling conversations with people shaping the news. You can find Q&A wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe. On this interview and Q&A, we'll learn more about Antifa with Jillian Melcher. She's a columnist for The Wall Street Journal's editorial page. You can find this entire Q&A episode on our website and at cspan.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Happy Thanksgiving. Next up, you'll be hearing from Jillian K. Melcher, an editorial writer for the Wall Street Journal, who's written about Antifa. But first, let's begin by hearing the comments from the two men in the first presidential debate. Somebody's got to do something about Antifa and the left, because this is not a right-wing own, problem. This, is, this is a left-wing. FBI director This is a left-wing problem. I'm a guy wing white supremacist. Antifa's an idea, not an organization. Oh, you've got it Not kidding. militia. That's what All his right. an idea. FBI... His okay. FBI director gentlemen, said. Well, we're then gonna, you know no, what he's No, no, wrong. We're, done, we're done, sir. Everybody, we're moving on to the next. Everybody we're you a in, bad you in over your administration—that's not an idea. Everybody Antifa in your administration bad. tells you the truth is a, has a bad idea. Can I tell you what? You have no Antifa, ideas. Antifa. Antifa is a dangerous radical All right, radical gentlemen, group. we're now moving on to the Trump and, and you ought Biden to be records. With them. They'll overthrow you. When a president. Seconds. After that exchange, you wrote for the Wall Street Journal editorial page about Antifa, coming to the conclusion that both men are right. What's what your thinking?
1: Well, so uh, Biden is right that this is an ideology, first and foremost, it's less of a group. But I think uh, Trump is also right that it is dangerous, that it's a radical movement. Um, and that it's been really willing to engage in and to endorse violence.
0: Let's understand terminology. Antifa stands for anti-fascist. So for the adherence of Antifa, what is the fascism that they see in American society that they oppose?
1: Well, I think that's part of the problem that this is a really disorganized, uh, you can't even really call it a group, it's an ideology. So the idea that adherents believe in is that they have to confront racism, have to confront bigotry, sexism, homophobia, wherever they see it. But those things are never quite clearly defined. And so sometimes you have people who are using more traditional uh, definitions of it. Other times it's expanded to mean uh, conservatives, Republicans. So it's, it's this expansive sort of definition about what constitutes fascism. Um, And because this is a leaderless movement, no one's really there to to say what that means.
0: Sometimes critics of Antifa also use the word anarchist. Are the two terms interchangeable?
1: Uh, So they overlap, it's kind of like a Venn diagram. So you have the radical left, Um, you have many anarchists who say they are part of Antifa, they identify as anti-fascist, but you also have people who are not anarchists who identify as anti-fascist. And we, we've got to keep in mind, this is a, a group, if you want to say it, but you can't, there's no formal membership. There's no hierarchy, there's no structure. It's not something that you can sign up for membership in. It's literally something that people say they are. It's more like a political affiliation or movement. Um, they're able to organize online, but there's no top-down structure here.
0: If it is uh, hard to define and there's no structure, how do uh, public officials ever estimate the size of the Antifa movement?
1: I don't think you can, to be honest. Um, I I mean, you see protesters taking to the streets as as you did this summer. Um, Many of them are Antifa. There's some overlap between uh, the Antifa movement, the anarchist movement and Black Lives Matter. But it's, it's essentially um, sort of a panoply of far left groups that are taking to the streets in these protests. And I think it's really difficult um, to count them because pretty much the only way you could do it is go up and say, do you identify as Antifa or not? It's not like there would be even a place online or in person to count.
0: You did interview some Antifa adherents for your, your piece. How did you find them?
1: <laughs> well, so two of them are experts and I'll actually back up a little bit. So this isn't a new movement. Um, if if you're in Antifa, uh, they date themselves back to like the 1920s, the 1930s. In the U.S. and the U.K., this is a movement that's been around since the 1980s, uh, actually came up out of punk. Um, but there are a couple of scholars who've been studying them for quite some time. So I, I reached out to them, including one of them who himself identifies as Antifa, And this was back, like, 2017, I think, uh, when you were starting to see a lot of clashes between Antifa adherents and uh, groups on the far right, like Patriot Prayer uh, in Seattle, in Berkeley, in Portland, clashing off in the streets. And then the other thing is, because this isn't a group with a hierarchy or a leader, um, a lot of the organization is done spontaneously. It's done online through Twitter. Um, So as this movement was starting to grow and pick up steam, 2016, 2017, 2018, I followed quite a few of the Twitter accounts um, and ended up talking to some adherents that way. Um, And it also, I'll I'll just say, uh, you know, some of my Facebook friends identify as Antifa. Um, So it is a pretty broad base.
0: Can you, uh, from those conversations and from the people you follow, can you give us any sense of uh, the demographics of the adherents?
1: Um, I would say, and the experts that I've spoken to would also say, that it's primarily a white movement. It's young, it's left-leaning, um, and kind of the basic tenets are that they'll expose this expansive idea of fascism. Um, with its anarchist leanings, uh, a lot of anti adherents um, don't actually want state censorship of speech that they find offensive or fascist. Um, what they'd rather do is use the heckler's veto. Or they would like to go and find people that they perceive to be fascist, expose them online through doxing, try to get some sort of social consequence, um, whether it's losing their job, uh, losing their popularity, losing friends, becoming undateable. Or, and then kind of the third component of this is not everybody who identifies as Antifa engages in violence. But pretty universally, they refuse to disavow it. They view violence as something that is an essential part of the movement, a legitimate response to fascism. And there's even this phrase going around in Antifa circles, it's called anticipatory self-defense. The idea is that if you believe that fascism is such a threat that it will end up in violence, it's better to preempt that now. Now, the the problem with that is um, anticipatory self-defense looks a lot like going on a violent offense. And in a system where you do have rule of law, where you do have the right to vote, um, where you do have a, a political system that's accountable to the people, um, the use of violence is obviously wrong.
0: In watching some of the, the clashes that have happened in American cities, particularly in Seattle and Portland, uh, over the past several months. Uh, you describe it as sort of toxic brew of adherence from uh, of all different parts of the political spectrum. Is it clear who's responsible for that violence when it does break out?
1: Um, so I think that's kind of one of the difficulties that law enforcement faces. So there has been a lot of violence. Um, I mean, I, granted, there are peaceful protesters there, but I think the refusal to disavow violence is an illegitimate form of dissent is a problem here and we have seen pretty extreme violence um the one that strikes me is the repeated use of commercial fireworks and i, I didn't really understand what that was so i actually spoke to someone who sells fireworks at a fireworks stand um, these aren't you know sparklers they're not the firecrackers that you buy and let off um, these are the kind of fireworks that cities use when they're doing the fourth of july um, they're, they're pretty high-grade explosives and they're really dangerous And you've seen these deployed again and again against law enforcement. Um, And I I think police really face a problem when they're trying to contain this violent movement, because it is leaderless. It's not centralized. There's not one person calling the shots. And so that means two things. First of all, that when people are taken to the streets, um, there's a tendency for the most extreme or the most assertive or the most violent groups to kind of set the tone for the night. And there's no leader to rein them back in. There's no restraining or moderating force here. And the second thing that this means is, unlike past movements um, where you could go after the leader, where you could go after the financial structure, it's much more difficult to target a movement that is decentralized. Um, you can take down one person who is you know, shooting off a firecracker or shooting off a firework or throwing uh, you know, sticks or stones or frozen water bottles at officers. But in its place, you'll have hundreds more. So I, I think that really poses a challenge to law enforcement that they haven't faced yet.
0: Well, you mentioned financial structure. How uh, is the Antifa movement or various cells or local organizations, how are they funded?
1: <laughs> so I actually asked quite a few of them this. Um, There's a theory going on the right that uh, George Soros funds this. I I actually reached out to his organization. They deny it. And when I asked Antifa folks about it, they found it completely laughable. Um, This is a far left movement. It's got anarchist components. It's anti-capitalist. So the idea that they would take money from a billionaire, a lot of them just said, no way we would find that immoral. Now, there is some funding. But what you see is not like Antifa funding in particular. It's kind of across the spectrum of far left groups. And it tends to be GoFundMe groups. They're targeted toward bailout funds, toward legal defense funds. And some of that money might go to Antifa. Some of it may also go to Black Lives Matter. Um, Some of it may go to protesters who identify as neither, but who are are taking to the streets and demonstrating. Um, But I I think the third thing to keep in mind here is that when we talk about funding, a lot of these things aren't actually that expensive. So there was a story that went viral about, you know, like a U-Haul showing up at a protest, um, dropping off a lot of supplies. But the protesters that I talked to um, said that even if you were to do that, like rent a U-Haul, take supplies, at most that would cost a couple hundred bucks. It's crowdfunded. People are going and printing off their own flyers. They're organizing online. And it's just not that expensive.
0: One of the other uh, aspects of the protests uh, that has been written about is that the coordinated uh, wearing of black during protests. Mm -hmm. What what is the idea behind that as they move to sites where they're forming protests?
1: Well, it's called Black Block, um, and it's something that you've seen. I, th- I think about in the last two decades, affiliated with far left protest groups. And the idea is that if you're gonna show up in protest, especially if there's a high likelihood of vandalism or the use of violence, that you want some form of anonymity as protection against law enforcement. So a lot of Antifa protesters have embraced this tactic. They'll show up wearing all black, they'll often show up with face coverings and it makes it really difficult for law enforcement to identify who specifically is responsible for a violent act. So um, at at times you'll see even um, say somebody starting a fire or somebody destroying a business engaged in looting. The police will come in and try to make an arrest. And then you'll see a bunch of people who are identically dressed uh, with their faces covered coming up, trying to interrupt that arrest. And it makes it also easier for them to phase back into the crowd um, and to become unidentified. So that's another challenge that law enforcement faces as it's going after this radical movement.
0: So how are tactics like that shared among adherents?
1: <laughs> Social media. Um, you know, it's, it's really fascinating. A lot of these protesters will get online and learn from each other. Um, and another really interesting phenomenon, I think. Um, I covered the protest movement in Hong Kong as well. And you're starting to see protesters paying attention to what's worked in other countries during other protest movements and adopting those tactics that so you're starting to see, for instance, the use of umbrellas to block surveillance cameras.
0: The, uh, I wanted to go back to the uh, nonviolent tactics and have you define a term for people that really aren't Internet savvy. You mentioned that one of the tactics is doxing. What yes. is doxing?
1: Doxing is the idea that you'll find somebody that you disagree with, who you think has abhorrent beliefs, and you will expose all of their personal information online. And that can vary from their cell phone number, their home address, their employer. And Antifa uses this as a way to ramp up the pressure on these people. It'll often drive campaigns where um, it will, for instance, pick a tweet it finds objectionable and say, call this person's employer, flag this person's tweet with their employer with the explicit goal of a uh, employment or a social consequence.
0: And what uh, defenses do people who have been targeted have against tactics like this?
1: They don't have a lot, um, to be honest. This is a movement that's closely linked to cancel culture or call out culture. Um, and I, I do think you have seen cases where people have been um, targeted potentially unjustly who say that they are not fascist um, or who have been misidentified and unfortunately, there, there's not much they can do about that, because this is a decentralized movement. There's nobody that you can appeal it to if it was a case of mistaken identity. But also, it's not illegal.
0: Back in June, you wrote for the journal about Antifa activity in the city of Philadelphia in particular. Mm-hmm. I want to read a paragraph for our viewers that you that you uh, wrote, not all of Philadelphia's anti fascists and anarchists engage in violence or vandalism, though many support a diversity of tactics and won't denounce attacks on property. Some run food banks and organizations offering legal support and mutual aid. Others research and expose alt right activists or agitate for the disinvitation of public speakers they consider fascist. Many shun electoral politics, but their ideas, including that capitalism is destructive and that police, prisons, and immigration enforcement should be done away with, have become increasingly mainstream on the left. So I have a, a few questions about that. First of all, what was happening in Philadelphia that drew your attention?
1: Um, so Philadelphia is a city with a, a pretty large uh, radical left or far left presence, and that has included in recent years um, more and more people who identify as Antifa. So that was interesting to me to begin with. Uh, the second thing that was really interesting is I, I'd seen a case about a property developer um, who'd been gentrification. And his properties had actually been um, vandalized a ton of times. Uh, his family had been threatened, his employees had been threatened. And this kind of came to a peak when somebody lit one of his developments on fire um, and caused a, a significant amount of damage. Um, so what he told me is that he'd gone to the police time after time, uh, tried to get this you know, investigated, tried to get somebody prosecuted for this pattern of harassment and intimidation against him and that he was just having no luck getting anywhere. So I, I was curious about why that was and investigated that in my
0: story. So we talked about some of the non-activists, uh, non uh, non-activist, and you write about them in that paragraph, and also some of the nonviolent means that they uh, use. But I'm curious about uh, something that you write, which is that um, many shun electoral politics. Mm-hmm. Is the Antifa philosophy represented anywhere in our current electoral politics?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and it's one that I've raised to them. So I, I think this gets to the, the sort of anarchist uh, theme or strain undercutting this entire movement. Um, they certainly don't like Donald Trump, certainly don't like Republicans, but a lot of them also. Really object to the Democratic Party. Uh, you know, speaking about Philadelphia in particular, when I was out covering the Democratic National Convention back in 2016, um, there was a pretty significant far left or anarchist presence that was really mad at Hillary Clinton, that views the Democratic Party as corrupt, that believes that it has uh, turned its back on people of color and on the poorest Americans. So I-, I think there's a general and widespread rejection. Of the US political system as a whole. Um, they don't want, uh, I, I would say, like a transition from Republican politics to Democratic politics. That wouldn't solve the problem that they're trying to solve. They're actually seeking a comprehensive overhaul of the system.
0: There's a however there, and that's that your last sentence, which is that their ideas have become increasingly mainstream on the left. So, what do you see happening? And the progressive part of the Democratic Party that uh, is enforcing these these ideas or trends, reinforcing well, it.
1: You know, I, I do think that there's a tendency on the left that has grown to question whether America was ever great. Um, there's also a greater tendency to view politics that you disagree with as illegitimate, and uh, to confront capitalism to view that as a problem. And, and those are kind of the three things that I, I think that. Anarchists and Antifa, that's their critique of the political system. It has gone mainstream in a bigger way. Um, you know, I, I think people would have been surprised four years ago if a movement to utterly defund the police had become mainstream. Yet that's where we are. And I, I also think you're starting to see a lot of the rhetoric um, pioneered by anarchists, by the far left, by Antifa, by the more radical components of the pol- culture. Um become mainstream, and then you're also seeing an expansion of call out culture, or of canceling people on Twitter. And that's something that very much has its roots in this radical leftist activist tradition.
0: So overall, what are the trends that you see happening in American society writ large that is encouraging the growth of movements of this sort?
1: Um, I would actually argue that when it's partially an effect of the stay at home orders, I think that when people are separated um don't have a chance to sit down and engage in conversation it trends you toward more extreme ideas which you'll find online so that lack of engagement person to person where you have to actually sit down have a conversation with someone that you like who has different ideas than you without that um you're going to move to a more radical position so I, i think that's one component of the trend I also think a lot of people believe that Democrat or Republican, the system hasn't worked for them um, and that there's corruption or there's widespread uh, problems within the US political system. That's what I hear when I talk to people who are more open to embracing Antifa or have actually gotten and taken the step of identifying as Antifa.
0: Regarding specifically the idea of defunding the police and you've written that many of their protests then logically occur around police precinct stations. Uh, but what, how do they envision a, a society without any sort of uh, law enforcement or uh, a, a way to punish people uh, who are um, you know, uh, really uh, destructive of society?
1: Um, you know, That's something I've asked, and I haven't really gotten a good answer to. Um, I mean, a lot of people who want to defund the police believe that you can have some form of community policing. They want to invest more in mental health. They want to invest more in communities and things like childcare. But I don't think that they have a good answer for what you do, for instance, if there's a murderer or a rapist or somebody who is habitually committing violent crimes. Um, And I I do actually think that's a weak spot in the defund the police movement. Um, And just getting back to the idea of why courthouses, why police precincts have been targeted, Um, they view those as legitimate targets because they want to take down the system. They disagree with the system. But I I think that this is something um, really important to pay attention to in the cultural moment because the United States relies on rule of law. When there are injustices, we rely on our court system. We uh, we, We rely on our juries. Um, to administer justice. And this is an alternative form of justice that they're advancing that is extra legal. And I I think uh, in places like Portland and Seattle, we've seen how quickly that devolves into uncontrollable mob rule.
0: I wanted to go back um, to your reference to China and Hong Kong and the protesters there, excuse me, Um, and and maybe engage a little bit in a philosophical conversation. You know, uh, as you well know, this country was founded on protest against established order, and we've enshrined the right to protest in the First Amendment. So uh, when you think about these questions of people um, protesting elements of our society, where's the line drawn?
1: Well, I think there's a big difference um, between what's happened in Hong Kong and what's happened in the United States. And this is the difference that the Chinese Communist Party regularly tries to blur. Uh, They point out that Protests in Hong Kong devolved into violence and vandalism. Protests in the US have devolved into violence and vandalism. But what I think is really important to understand is that in the United States, you have an alternative way of expressing political dissent that you do not have in Hong Kong, and you do not have in mainland China. And that is your right to vote, and that is uh, rule of law. You have protection in the courts. You have a a system that enshrines human rights at the center of it. and you're actually able to have a political voice. Um, What we've seen happening in China for sure is that dissent, peaceful protest is squashed violently by the state. And in Hong Kong, we've seen the enactment of a national security law that criminalizes all forms of dissent where the maximum punishment is up to life in prison. So I I, I think that in the United States in particular, uh, where you do have a recourse, a political voice beyond violence, beyond vandalism, Um, it becomes really dangerous and improper to endorse political violence. I I think that's the difference.
0: We have about five minutes left. I wanted to play a clip from FBI Director Christopher Wray uh, as he testified on Capitol Hill about Antifa, uh, because your piece concludes with uh, when protests evolve into violence or property destruction, and uh, society has to respond what the challenges are. But let's listen to him talking about it, and then we'll come back to you. Antifa is a real thing. It is not a fiction. Now, we have seen organized tactical activity at both the local and regional level. We have seen Antifa adherents coalescing and working together in what I would describe as uh, small groups and nodes. We have a number of predicated investigations into some anarchist violent extremists who operate, some of whom operate through these nodes and subscribe to or self-identify with anarchist extremism, including Antifa. uh, And we will not hesitate, will not hesitate to aggressively investigate that kind of activity. So bringing us back to our definitions at the beginning, it's clear as we conclude here that not all Antifa adherents are anarchists, correct? Mm -hmm. That's right. So when, in fact, it devolves into anarchy and crimes are committed, what are the challenges for law enforcement, both at the federal and uh, state and local level? So you
1: can't target Antifa, a decentralized movement, a leaderless movement, by going after the person at the top or by going after the funding structure. What we've seen right now with law enforcement is they are trying to go after individuals who commit illegal acts. So the person who threw the water bottle at cops, the person who let the firework off, the person who burned down the building. Um, But the challenge here is that because this is decentralized, you take one person out of the equation, but there are hundreds more willing to come in. Um, And that's something law enforcement doesn't really have a good answer for how it will confront.
0: We have a big election facing us in this country in a very short period of time. Do you see one outcome or the other, the re-election of Donald Trump or the election of Joe Biden, having any influence on the Antifa movement?
1: So when I speak to Antifa protesters, there's a lot of skepticism um, about whether Donald Trump will step down. And there's also, I think, a reluctance to believe that any Donald Trump win could be a legitimate win. And I I think a lot of them are gearing up, uh, preparing to protest, and a lot of them refuse to disavow violence during those protests. So I I think there is potential for this, especially if uh, there's, you know, um, one candidate appears to be in in front at the beginning then several weeks later as mail-in ballots are counted. I guess if there's ambiguity around the results or the legitimacy of this election, I think there's a high potential for confrontations, including violent ones.
0: From your perch on the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal, do you anticipate continuing to follow Antifa and also the alt-right? And uh, from what perspective, what interests you most?
1: I sure do. Um, so I think with movements like this, there's a tendency on the left and the right to create straw men. And it is really important to cover these movements because they shape American politics. Uh, They are in some ways the flashy and interesting things. But I also think that just in the interest of having a public discourse, it is important to sit down with people and hear them out to understand their critique of the political system and the solutions that they're offering and engage with those ideas. And one thing that I'm really concerned about is that these confrontations that particularly involving the use of political violence that there's not a real debate going on. Um, So my goal is to understand what these people are thinking and then write about it in an intelligent way.
0: You can find Jillian K. Melcher's work on the Wall Street Journal's editorial page. Thanks so much for uh, being part of the C-SPAN Q&A program. We are delighted to meet you and uh, thank you for your time.